And this morning, uh, we're going to be we're going to begin looking at at chapter 26 in the confession dealing with the doctrine of the church. On your handouts there, you only have the first seven paragraphs. So if you're familiar with the confession, you probably know that there's 15 paragraphs. We're certainly not going to be getting through all of that today. So uh, we're going to break this class up into two classes and do paragraphs one through seven today. Lord willing, paragraphs eight through 15 uh, next week. Um, if you're familiar with the Westminster Confession as well, this is one of those chapters that, that differs greatly from the Westminster Confession. Uh, the Westminster only has six chapters on the doctrine of the church, and that's not a slight against the Westminster Confession in any way. Um, but, but our Baptist forefathers said more needs to be said about, about the church. And so there's 15, uh, 15 chapters, or excuse me, 15 paragraphs in this, in this chapter. And kind of how it's broken up, paragraphs one through four deal mainly with the universal church, or, or what's called the Catholic church, not the Roman Catholic church, but the Catholic in the sense of universal. Um, and then uh, paragraphs five through 15 deal with more of your local congregations. So that's kind of how that's, that's set up for us. Um, so let's go ahead and begin by reading paragraph one. If I can have somebody read that. I just realized I don't have a handout, so let me get one. Somebody can start reading that. Does the Catholic, that is, universal church, may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into the one under Christ forever. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, thanks, Will. All right, so... The universal church here, the confession states, is all true believers, all the elect from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that have been, are, or will be gathered together into one under Christ, her head. Now, when the scriptures use the word church, more often than not, it's referring to the local church. However, there are places in scripture where it refers to the church universal, to all the, all the saints throughout all time. And I just want to mention a couple of those. Um, one of those is on your, on your handout, but the other two are not. So a uh, popular passage here in Matthew 16, 18. Somebody want to read that for us? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so here's an example of the universal church, right? Jesus isn't speaking about just a, a local congregation, um, of whom the gates of hell will not prevail, speaking about all the people of God in all places at, at all times. Uh, Ephesians 1, 22, same type of mentality here. Somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, again. You see the universal aspect of that. Christ is the head over all things to the church. That would be the universal church there, not just a local uh, congregation. And then one more passage, which the confession cites here. Hebrews 12, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly 
of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So that statement there, to the assembly, the gathering, the, the word actually means the festal gathering. It's this celebratory aspect, and certainly it is celebratory with the work that Christ has completed in bringing us into the body of Christ. But to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Uh, we see in Revelation talks about a book in which are written the names of all God's elect. And miraculously, mercifully, our names are found in there who are in Christ. So all of these passages, just a few of them, refer to this aspect of the universal or the Catholic church. Again, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic in the sense of universal here. And then the confession states that the universal church may also be called the invisible church with respect to the internal work of the spirit. Okay. Now, we want to be careful when we use a term like this one, and we really want to be diligent to make sure we define what we mean by it, because nowhere in Scripture do we see this terminology of the visible and invisible church being used, although I do think you see it being implied, which is why we use terms like that. Uh, the church is invisible in the sense that we can't see the work of the Spirit which joins a person to Christ, right? We're unable to see that. When a person is born again, we don't visibly see that happening. Uh, but we do see the results of that when a person is, is born again. Okay? It's invisible. We cannot perfectly judge the truth of another person's profession. Um, God alone knows those who are truly in his church. And a helpful way to think about the visible and invisible church uh, just a small little diagram here. So this outer circle representing the visible church as all the people who are professing to be Christians. Within that, you have the invisible church, those who are truly part of the flock of Christ. We know that, as Scripture teaches us in numerous places, that there will be many who profess to be Christ's who actually are not. Um, and so those would be visible, right, the visible saints, but those who, are, who truly are are known by God alone. Um, those who are truly Christians is what that inner circle uh, represents. And I, I think a couple biblical examples will just kind of help clarify that. The 12 apostles were the visible church, right? But within the 12 apostles, there was an invisible church, Right? because not all 12 were genuinely Christ's, right? Judas proved that he was not a sheep that belonged to Christ. So the 11 were the invisible church of the 12 visible uh, people that were in there. Additionally, as I, I mentioned in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, okay, so there's, there's a profession they're calling Jesus Lord. Not everyone who says that to me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay? So Jesus himself declares 
that there are going to be those who profess to be in Christ who on that day will be manifest not to be his. Okay. Which, that, that's, a, that's a sobering passage right there when we think about the weightiness of that. So Jesus describes these here who are part of the visible church, those who have made professions of faith, yet we, he clearly shows us that these are not truly part of the church. They're not part of the invisible church that only God sees. And it's often very difficult to ascertain who in the visible church is actually part of the true invisible church. I'll give you an example of this. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. with me at verses 16 through 19 in 2 Timothy 2. Maybe I can have somebody read that for us. But avoid irreverent babble for uh, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like Yeah, through 19. Oh, Thanks, Robert. So Paul reminds Timothy that although he may not know who truly is and who is not part of Christ's flock, God does. God knows who they are. God knows who is truly in the church of Jesus Christ, who have been truly called out of the world and united to his son uh, by faith. What's interesting about this passage, too, is as you see... uh, Paul here in verse 19, he says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, right? So known only to God. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, which is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 7 about those who are professing to be his, right? Because he he declares at the end of that, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, very similar to what Paul is saying here. So that, that lifestyle of sin, of iniquity, was marking these people out that they were not truly part of the people of God. Okay? So hopefully that's helpful as we think about the visible and invisible church here that is spoken about in paragraph one. Any, any questions or comments on uh, paragraph one before we move on? Robert. Just on this passage, mm-hmm. say on verse 18, the truth, yeah, there were some that were teaching in error that the resurrection has already already taken place. That manifested itself in a, a few different teachings with subtle nuances within it, but that was a, a, a popular teaching back then. I'm not sure all the details of, like, visibly how they would say that happened, um, but it was a teaching that was infiltrating the, infiltrating the church. Yeah. And, and persuasively enough to where other people were following them, right? They're, they're upsetting the faith of some. Uh, 
Um, that the resurrection has already already happened. Okay. okay, let's take a look here at paragraph number two. If I can have somebody read that for us. All people throughout the world profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ and keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints as long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living. All local congregations ought to be made up of these. Okay. So paragraph one deals with the reality that only God knows who truly are the saints of God. And then paragraph two shows us that the invisible church will not be invisible in the world. Okay? It will not be invisible in the world. In other words, though they will be those who publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ and whose lives match their profession. Um, the confession here states a number of passages that point uh, to this reality. We're just going to look at a couple of those. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 2, where it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, so here's this aspect of called to be saints. We're going to get to this in a little bit, but as you see Paul work out 1 Corinthians, and in particular in 2 Corinthians, when he gets to the, to the end of his letter, he, he says this, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Right? So you have here, called to be saints, but he recognizes there may be some within the professing Corinthian church who are not truly known by God. Okay? So, they're, they're called to be saints, so that's why the confession mentions here they may be called visible saints. They're within the congregation of the people of God, um, but are they actual? Time will manifest that. Romans 1 also, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So these passages show that believers are those who have embraced the gospel and ought to be living in accordance with that gospel. Um, right? They haven't strayed and followed after false doctrine. They haven't de denied the faith. Those that profess to be saints but have strayed away from that faith or denied it by their behavior are not fit to be called saints if they remain in that state. Um, that's one of the aspects of church discipline, right? Is there's a profession there, there's an acknowledgement, yes, I belong to Christ, and then there's something in a lifestyle that is manifesting itself in such a way that calls that profession into question, uh, an unholy living, a sinful lifestyle. The confession here cites 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. I do want to go ahead and read that, because I think it's helpful, and I actually want to read through verse 11, 1 Corinthians 5. Excuse me. Somebody want to read that for us? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 11. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and that the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for man has his father's wife. If you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit, and as in presence, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you not in my letter, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world, for greedy or swimmers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to beat with such a one. Okay, thanks. Now, verses 9 through 11 are very important verses uh, in this passage. Paul talks here about not associating with sexually immoral people, and then he goes on to show us that it is those who are professing to be believers and and are living sexually immoral lives uh, that he is referring to. Something else that's important here is that Paul's not talking about a a one-time instance here. In other words, this is what defines these people. Sexual immorality, greed, drunkenness. It's, it's, as he references here, the people of the world are defined in this way. And such were some of us, right? We could have been characterized uh, that way. So these, these aren't people who have fallen into sin and, okay, get them out of the church. It's, it's people who have embrace this and they're living this life they're they're following after the things of the flesh and that's why the confession states that those who are in the church may be called visible saints as long as they don't destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living right so that aspect of living i think is really important because again it defines what these people are doing uh, not not sin that people are battling with and fighting against, as we all do on various various levels. Um, that's the one who has destroyed their own profession by their unholy behavior. Uh, we're, we're not to think that a person isn't a saint, that is a Christian, because they battle against various sins that Paul mentions here. Uh, in fact, if there is a fight against that, that's a very good sign, if there's a brokenness over sin, if there's a desire to turn away from it, uh, that's a a great sign that the person actually belongs to Christ. But that's not what the confession is referring to. They're referring to people who dive into this and live in it. It's, It's what characterizes who they are. Those are the ones who have destroyed their profession. So really, really helpful here because the confession wants to make sure we're, we're slow in our declaration that that person's not a Christian because look what they did, right? Well, we'd all be out of the camp on some level if, if, that, if we're just looking at one-time acts, right? But if they persist in that, right, if this is a lifestyle, then their profession of faith needs to be called into question. 
All right? So that's what, that's what the confession is, is dealing with here. So I think it's a very uh, a gracious way um, that they're trying to deal with the remaining sin that we all battle against, while at the same time not leaving room for people just to live uninhibited lives of, of sin. Okay? All right, let's move on to paragraph three. If somebody can read that for us. Okay, amen. So, great reminder here, right? The reality is that in every local church, however great it may be, there will be sin at some level as we all continue to fight and wrestle against the indwelling uh, sin, the remaining corruption within us. And I want to take a walk through 1 Corinthians to kind of kind of see this as Paul, again, addresses these believers. Here they are. They're in the church. They're professing to be Christians. They're professing we're united to Christ. Paul gives them the benefit of the doubt on that. He addresses them as such. You're called to be saints. And then you look through the rest of 1 Corinthians and you just see him correcting one thing after after another within that church. And how they're going to respond to that is going to be very telling of where they're at. So, for example, look with me at 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, uh, verse 11. Paul says, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. All right? So, right, right, right at the outset here, quarreling and fighting taking place at the church in Corinth. Okay? Right? We don't want to have this idea that the first century churches, man, they, oh man, they had it all. The spirit dropped in and it, it was all over. You know, it was holy living all the way, no, no sin, right? So you have that, and then go over, we read this in chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, so sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. Chapter 6, verse 6, Well, I'll back up to verse 5 just to keep it in context here. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Okay? So, lawsuits happening between the saints. Not able to, to work that out. Chapter 11. And I'm not hitting on everything that Paul addresses here, obviously, but just trying to give you a sample. Verses 17 through 19. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So, Divisions showing partiality in the body of Christ is another issue that was that was dealt with. So you can just see just from those, the church of Corinth had issues going on that, that needed to be addressed. Yet Paul 
begins his letter to them and addresses them as saints. He's seeking to come in, and you think of the patience of God toward us, not certainly not tolerating our sin anyway, but in bringing his word to us in order that we may come face to face with that sin, that we might turn away from it and walk in a manner that is, that is pleasing to him. You know, as I'm coming up on 20 years being a Christian, I'm just looking back and I'm like, man, the Lord is so kind and patient and faithful. Like there's areas in my life where I'm like, man, I should be a lot farther down the road than I am, you know, already. And, and yet here the Lord is bearing with me continuously, continuing to work in me that which is pleasing in his sight. So I think that's, that's helpful as we think about this aspect that the purest churches under heaven, I think the confession really nails it, are subject to mixture and error. Um, and the confession goes on to say here, some churches will sin so grievously that they apostatize. They become, as the confession says here, and as the scriptures say, synagogues of Satan. But it, it has this caveat, this beautiful caveat in here, right? That the universal church of Christ will always exist in this world. Even in the midst of all her struggling and fighting and error and sin, the Lord is still working with his bride and perfecting her for that glorious day. And it has always been that way. He's always had and he always will have a kingdom in this world. Those who profess his name, no, no matter how bad things seem to get. And there are a few passages uh, that the confession mentions here that I want to look at. I didn't realize I put those up on there. How do you guys turn to them? So, uh, so here's, here's some of the ones that the confession cites to back that up. Right? We read the first one already, Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a great statement. However bad things seem to be within the church of Christ, Christ has a people, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against that. The kingdom of God will continue to march on through this world, proclaiming the gospel, gathering together all those that the Father has predestined unto eternal life to give to his son. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so there's just a definitive statement by the Lord Jesus. The gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's going to happen. It's going to continue to be preached with all the blemishes that we may see in the bride of Christ, the gospel is still advancing through her. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? Christ is not abandoning his bride. Right? He's bearing with her, working in her, that which is pleasing in his sight. Psalm 72, verses 17 and 18, reference to the Davidic king, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. The fame of Jesus Christ is going to continue to go on all the way to the end. It will not stop. Christ is always going to have a people who live for him and proclaim his gospel and exalt him in that way. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him 
blessed. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government, referring to Christ, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, right? So, man, just passages like this should strengthen our hearts. Christ and his, working through his church will continue to go throughout this world, calling his people unto himself. So as bad as it can seem at times, be encouraged, take heart from that, that Christ will always have a people who genuinely profess his name until the day he returns. And each of us individually are testimonies of that. We're a greater testimony collectively, but individually, again, you just think of your own life and how Christ has continued to bear with you in all of your weaknesses and imperfections, and he continues day by day to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Such an encouragement. Our God is faithful. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. No one will snatch us out of his hand. He's going to keep working all the way until that day of glory when he perfects us with himself on that day. So we're looking forward to that. All right. Paragraph four. Somebody want to take that one? In communion? Yes. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. By the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. The Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be head of the church. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the son of destruction, who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Okay, thanks, Kyle. So the focal point, as you can probably tell of this paragraph, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head and authority over the universal church. And obviously in context, it's being written for a specific reason, as the Pope is exalting himself as that. And the writers wanted to correct that and say, absolutely not. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is the one who is the head of of the church, and because he is, clearly, the Pope of Rome cannot be. Now, there's a lot of discussion on, is the Pope the Antichrist, <laughs> right? So you have many who would hold to the 1689 and say, yeah, and you'd have others who would say, maybe, we can't say definitively. There's some that are very dogmatic on that, that would be like, absolutely, and others would be like, it's definitely a possibility, but maybe not. About that. Yep. Is there, when he says Antichrist, are they talking Antichrist in Revelation? Because there's no reference to Revelation here. Is there some, some other that isn't necessarily Antichrist Yeah, let me see if I have this in my notes. Yeah, you can see the, the um, reference that is cited here, Second Thessalonians.
So yeah, this is a yeah, this is this is a very helpful passage, and and why many are very like yeah, that's that matches beautifully with how Rome is set up, right? Um, so I, I lean that way. I lean that way, and I don't know if that's just because with my Roman Catholic upbringing, I'm like more prone to to head in that direction. But it's, it's not a hill that I'll die on, but but I do lean with the writers of the confession in this, in this direction. Um, but again, what, how, how we ought to think about that, again, is to make sure that we don't miss the point. We don't want to just talk all day about whether or not the Pope is the one that is being referred to, but remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ is head of his church. And that's what we need to remember, because even though we have broken away from Roman Catholicism in that setup, there are still ways in which that type of spirit is manifest within evangelical churches as well, where you get pastors who are put up in a position that they ought not to be in solely and have that type of authority uh, within a local congregation. Uh, that's why we believe firmly and fervently about a plurality of elders and a parity amongst those elders. Peter, And then I'll come to Will. And then if anybody else. Yes. Yep. Yep. <coughs> yes. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah, that, that's why I would still lean in, in that direction because nothing has necessarily diminished from that. Um, maybe it's changed forms in a, in a different way, manifesting itself in a little different way. Um, not, not necessarily with the sword and, you know, so on and so forth, but still, that, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on how fervent I am in the 1689 that week, yeah. This is good. Okay, Will? So, um, does this statement exclude the possibility of other antichrists? Well, when you look through 2 Thessalonians 2 and you think about what's being mentioned there, um, you look at Rome and you see kind of a perfect system of, of that being set up. However, John in his first epistle refers to antichrists the, and, and that type of spirit being already out uh, in the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, we're, we're thinking of this man of lawlessness who was set up, but we also see the spirit of the antichrist. And John says many antichrists um, have already... I've already gone out, so. Yes. Yes, exactly. Totally. Yeah, not, yeah, the person. That's right, exactly. Yep. First John 2, um, somebody help me if you remember it. Or you can just quickly look it up in your Bible app, type in, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. 
Uh, there's one that's even more that kind of verse 18 thank you yes thank you that's the one I was looking for yeah good thanks all right good 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 stuff let's keep moving on here so we can finish up these next three paragraphs here oh sorry yes Robert Yeah. It's very evident that they think Catholicism and Christianity is the same thing. Yes. But they always end up saying, like, so what do you think about the Pope? Right. And I I don't know exactly how to respond to it. Because should I be fervent and be Right. Like, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's that, 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 that's a good question. My initial response is to say, yes, he's the Antichrist. But no, I, I wouldn't say that. I would, <laughs> yeah, in, in a more sober, spirit-controlled moment, hopefully I would um, say something better and more helpful in that. Um, because I, I don't want to get caught up necessarily on that issue. I would say, okay, let's see what, what is the Pope proclaiming? He's proclaiming that he's the vicar of Christ, that when he's seated, so to speak, or when he's in that role of authority, he speaks authoritatively on behalf of the church. Do we see that in contrast with what the scriptures teach? And I think we could look at passages and say that we have everything written down for us authoritatively from God. So there's no additional words that are coming to us. Um, presently, everything that we have is is here. Um, so I would I would want to turn the attention more back to the authority of Scripture and what the Scripture says about its own authority in, in that, rather than getting caught up because you get you could get down a rabbit trail with that. That just wouldn't yeah. in the end at the end of the day be profitable. What you want to do is drive that person back to the sufficiency of the Scripture and what the Scriptures teach regarding how a person is justified justified before God. So I'd want to keep that the main issue. But yeah, I would deal more with it. I come more from the perspective of the authority of Scripture on that and what it says about itself, that it is the final word uh, given to us and there's no additional authority coming coming to us. By the way, just, just a side note, um, we went out evangelizing yesterday uh, over in a, a, a neighborhood and man, talk about a softball. It was great. A softball like right down the middle of the plate, I mean. Ben and I were talking to uh, a girl um, who, is, who is Catholic, and at one point in the conversation, she goes, I've always wanted to know what's the difference between what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and what you guys believe. It's like, wow. Man, like my, my mind just started like, exactly. I'm like, all right, bring it in, Lord. I'm, I'm like really excited right now. Um, this is, you don't get many questions like that. And uh, it, was, it was a great conversation, but uh, just reminded me of that when you, when you said that, so um, they're, they're willing to talk. Um, I didn't. I stayed away from that. So, that's for another day. I'll let Pito in on. Uh, I'll call Pito for that one. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to the uh, the focal point again of this paragraph. Uh, again, what we want to keep in mind here is that Christ is the head of the church, and I, I want to really emphasize that afresh because. Again, while we would look at Roman Catholicism and say again, hey, we're, we, we've broken away from that, right? Um, we don't want to think that we can let our guard down when it comes to Jesus Christ being the head of the church within evangelical circles. You can see this manifest in many different ways. So we want to remember that and we want to keep that fresh in our minds so that when teachings that 
come in contrast to that, we can address those uh, properly. Colossians 1.18, speaking of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. So again, the head of the body, the one who governs it, controls it, directs it, he's the one. Um, so pastors within that church don't have any authority on their own. There's no sole authority that I have, Rick has, Jack has. We're, uh, we're men under authority who will one day give an account for how we do in shepherding Christ's body, Christ's flock. Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He is the head, he's the one who has all authority <coughs> over the church. So, okay, let's, uh, let's move on to paragraph five. And if you, again, if you have any other questions about these things, I've got the green box under here. I need to put it out so that you can uh, write some, some questions down. Paragraph five. Let's try to get through these next three here before the end. Exercising the authority entrusted to him, the Lord Jesus, in the ministry of his word, by his spirit, calls to himself out of, calls to himself out of the world those who are given to him by his father. They are called so that they will live before him in all the ways of obedience that he prescribes for them in his word. Those who are called to commands to live together in local societies or churches Okay, good, thanks. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, chapters or paragraphs 1 through 4 dealt mainly with the universal church, and now paragraphs 5 through 15, you have that transition now into what the uh, confession mentions here, local societies or local churches uh, that are being referred to, referred to here. In paragraph four, the writer spoke about how Christ is vested with all authority for the calling, institution, order, and government of the church. And now in paragraph five, the confession shows how Christ begins to exercise that authority, right? What, is that, what does that look like when we say that Christ is the head of the church? How does he govern in the, in the here and now, right? He's exalted at the right hand of the Father, but he's present in his spirit and through his word. <coughs> so this paragraph teaches that the local church originates from Jesus Christ. And the first step in the origin of the local church is Christ calling his elect out of the world and unto himself through his word and his spirit. Not going to spend a ton of time talking about this because we've kind of addressed it when we went through the chapter on election and effectual calling. Uh, but just a couple of passages that speak to this end of being called unto Christ and Christ establishing his church. Jesus said in John 12, 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, right? So Christ is he's gathering in his people from the four corners of the earth. John 17, 1 and 2, somebody want to read that for us? Okay, so that last part there, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Right? So Christ calling those people unto himself, called unto Christ. 
called not just to be justified, but to walk before him in the ways of obedience, which he lays out for his elect <coughs> in his <coughs> excuse me, in his word, as we read in Matthew 28, specifically in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? So there's this there's this constant teaching that ought to be going on in the church of Jesus Christ and how to walk in a manner that is pleasing to this calling which we have been given. So those whom he calls, he brings into local fellowships for their edification, as the confession says here, to engage in public worship, which he requires of them while in the world. So one of the main purposes that Christ has in mind for his church is their edification, their being built up together in him, reflecting him uh, more and more. Uh, we see this clearly in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I'm going to not go to that passage just for time's sake, but um, that's one that you can look up later if you would like to, if you want to jot that one down. Really helpful passage that lays out the reason that we come together, the reason that Christ instituted the church, that we might properly worship him and be built up in him. Yeah, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I'm sorry, I don't have time to turn to that right now, but... Um, Okay, I'm going to read paragraph 6. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. So the confession cites here those that are truly saints or holy ones, again, will demonstrate this by obedience to the call of Christ. Uh, that first act of obedience being seen in Matthew 28, 19 that we looked at earlier, baptism. We'll speak more about baptism in a, in a few weeks as the confession gives <coughs> some time for that. Well, one of the clearest displays of what the effects of the gospel looks like when it's received is seen in first the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> and uh, just for time's sake, we'll pick up at verse 6. If I can have somebody read verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10. So what, what a great testimony, right? The gospel came into this community, and the Apostle Paul says here, we didn't have to say anything. I mean, your, your testimony, like how the gospel affected you, is evident for all, all to see. Um, how you received it in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, what it affected had upon you. You turned from 
idols to serve the true and living God and wait for a son from heaven, right? So you, you see the gospel immediately beginning to penetrate the lives of these believers and causing them to walk in holiness. They're turning away from sin, turning to God, and the ultimate thing of waiting for his son to return from heaven. And then the confession goes on here to show that those who were called by Christ, linked up with a local church, were baptized, are also those who willingly consent to walk together according to Christ's instructions. Um, again, how, how thankful we are, right, that, that we're just not left to guess what are we supposed to do when we come together as the people of God, right? The Lord gives us instructions on how we are to interact with one another. Um, we give ourselves to the Lord and to one another and affirm our subjection or yeah affirm our subjection to the directives of the gospel a uh, couple passages there we don't again have time to look those up but acts 2 41 and 42 helpful passage as well as second corinthians 9 13 that the confession cites here i encourage you to to take a look at those when you have time all right let's finish up here with paragraph seven somebody would like to read that for us Very good. Thanks, Anthony. So, subject of this paragraph <coughs> is the power and authority possessed by the local church. Each local congregation, through its appointed elders, has the authority to govern the flock that is under them. And they're told, right, elders are told in the word how to do this. Okay? Again, not left to themselves to kind of figure this out. And left to ourselves, it's not going to end well. Right? We're either going to fall into one trap or another. We're either going to become very heavy-handed and become legalistic, or we're just going to kind of step back and not be confrontational at all, and that will lead to licentiousness. So Christ has given us in his word how the elders are to govern the local church. Uh, each local congregation is autonomous, self-governing, in that they're not under the ju jurisdiction of any other local congregation. But they're not autonomous in the sense that they can do whatever they would like, right? For example, when you look at the churches at the beginning of Revelation, Christ speaks directly to those churches and he tells them what needs to happen. He commends them for some of the things that they're doing and then he seeks to correct them for the things that they're not doing well. The Laodicean church doesn't have jurisdiction over the church of Ephesus to tell them what needs to be done in their church and to try to step in and have authority over that church. Right? Each church is dealt with individually and is governed individually, but all are governed under the word of God. That's the important point. So the word of God is the common bond that all lo local churches should have. That's why when we think about those things, in essence, all local congregations ought to look the same in that sense, as far as the government are concerned. Now, we have differences, obviously, um, with how we believe the church is governed. Um, we obviously view it differently from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Uh, but they believe they're holding to the word of God. We believe we're holding to the word of God. So it's profitable to have those discussions with them and, and kind of work through those things. Um, 
So what we want to remember from that, again, is the Word of God is governing everything that's happening within the local church. From the appointment of elders and deacons within that local church, who are to the elders to govern the people of God within that local congregation, the deacons to come alongside the elders and help in that capacity, and how the people in that congregation ought to respond to the authority that is over them, and how they're to behave with one another. So again, we're not left guessing on what we ought to do as we come together as the people of God. Um, applying that can be a challenge at times, right? Because we're still wrestling against sin that, that remains. Um, so sometimes we're not uh, kind and gracious and patient with each other as we ought to be. And so we have instructions in the word. Be patient with one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Um, right? So even as, as believers, we can battle against that, struggle against that, unforgiveness, being impatient, things of that nature. And so the scriptures instruct us on how we ought to behave in those situations. So what we, we ought to be extremely grateful for how God in his kindness has instituted the church and has given us instructions of what it ought to look like when we come together as his people and forgiving us one another, right? Forgiving us each other. That's one of the great blessings of the body of Christ, right? We, we, we all think, we, we have individual minds, we look at things maybe slightly differently, and we have other brothers and sisters can, that can come alongside us and say, you know, I don't, I don't know if we're looking at that the right way. I don't think that's going to be profitable, right? We can speak into each other's lives and try to help one another walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And how thankful we should be that God has given us instructions on how we are to do that. All of this to the end, what God is doing in all this, is conforming us into the image of his son and making his bride ready for that glorious day. And we'll pick up on that a little bit more next week, Lord willing, as we dive into paragraphs 8 through 15. So let me close us since I'm a little bit over already. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word that you have given uh, thank you first that you have called us out of this world unto yourself, that we have been brought into the body of Christ. Thank you that you've brought us together in this local congregation, um, Lord, where we seek to honor and worship you, to bring you glory, Father, where we seek to build one another up. And I pray that that would always be our mindset, Lord, is as we come into church, we wouldn't think necessarily about what others can do for me, but how I can be a blessing to those who are around me. And uh, just living gratefully because of all that you've done for us in Christ. So we thank you for that. Pray that you would just impress these truths afresh upon our hearts, Lord. Give us grace as we go now into the main service. Uh, give us attentiveness. Help us to listen well as your word is proclaimed. And uh, we thank you for your diligence in working in us that which is pleasing in your sight, Lord. We praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.